As Kevin McCarthy enters the 13th round of votes for the U.S. Speaker of the House, Gary and I poke, prod, and interrogate a college student about campus worldviews and Gen Z. An update on DeMar Hamlin's miraculous recovery leaves important questions unanswered, and a peek into the China cabinet reveals some troubling concerns with Kevin McCarthy. My name is Kevin Kukaji, and with my good friend Gary Humble, this is the Freedom Matters Podcast. Man, I don't know. I feel like there's two Kukajis in the room. Hey, <laughs> you've already given away our guest before you even got to speak. Well, I know because I'm nervous, and I'm what. And what? Well, the, the thing is, here's the thing. What I'm really hoping is that whatever quiz comes out of today, that it's going to be directed that direction. Now, so, oh, let me ask wow. you. Let me ask I think, you. I think we should quiz the younger we, folk. We should room. definitely quiz the younger folk. <laughs> oh, great. I will I will do that no, I'll, I'll, along the way. The feeling warm. <laughs> but I do have one. I see the smoke coming up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I do have one quiz question for Gary, though, since he brought it up. Um, Gary, what is the, the Kukaji who's sitting to my right? What is his middle name? Oh, well, come on. Wow. Now. <laughs> I'll give you a hint, too. It's the same as my middle name. Oh, we talked about this one time. I don't know. I don't remember. All right. Oh, man. So my middle name is a last name that my father, it was my father's mother's maiden name. But I do remember that when we did talk about your middle name, we were discussing it with someone who's known you for like 10 years, and that was the first time they had heard your middle name. So (laughs) I'm giving myself a little bit of cushion here. Well, the middle name is Stoddard. So to my right is my only son. As a lot of people know, I've got six children, but five daughters and one son. So he's carrying on the family name, and so we gave him three last names. His first name is Wills, which is his mother's maiden name. His middle name is Stoddard, which is my middle name and is also my, was my father's middle name, and it was my father's mother's maiden name. So that's a last name. And, of course, Kukaji. So Wills, Stoddard, Kukaji is here as our guest as a freshman in college and here to talk about, uh, we've brought him on especially to respond to some questions about uh, Gen Z and how he views the world versus a lot of the Gen Z, which we know, as Gary has said a number of times, voted D plus 28 in the last election, right? Mm -hmm. So um, welcome, Wills. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're welcome. I see you're wearing not one of your college shirt so you're wearing a Hillsdale I'm, College sweatshirt. I am. This is my best it's my best sweatshirt. I've got one like that and it is my favorite. So tell us where you're in school. I'm actually in school in uh Letourneau University which is in Longview, Texas. So that's East Texas, home of the pine tree. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> yeah, Gary knows a little bit I've about I've driven East through Texas. lots of pine trees yeah. <laughs> out in East Texas. And uh <clears throat> nothing else. No, I'm kidding. I'm studying mechanical engineering there. I just finished my well, just finished a month ago, finished my um, first semester. So looking to head back and start in the second one. Did you have success in your I first did. semester? Yeah, I did. Got all A's my first semester, which I was happy about. That was definitely... That a, would that would qualify as success, good. right? Yeah. yeah, that was a goal. That was a goal. One, just one Texas question for you. Have, have you had brisket and egg tacos for breakfast yet? I have not. I'll do it immediately. Okay. As soon as you get back. That See, even there's, applies there's, in East Texas? Because I know it's no, a sure. different culture. Oh, than, no, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, that's all over. That's Texas, period. If, if Wills, if you that didn't remember, the, the Gary, trucks. Gary's from <laughs> trucks Louisiana. Trucks and trailers flying faster. Than... 
Gary knows a lot about Texas, having been both from Louisiana and then lived in Dallas, right? Yeah, Dallas area for about 10 years, so... Yeah. Okay. Well, North Texas. So yeah, you're right. I mean, a little different than East Texas, but the but the brisket's the same. So okay. Yeah. So, Gary, I'll let you lead the interview because we were this this stemmed from we were going to do a, some video interviews, and for various reasons that didn't work out yet. So we wanted to have Will's on here to give a um, you know, we, we're we're adults. Gary's 44. I'm 55. You're not quite 19. So. We wanted our audience to have an opportunity to hear what you see, smell, feel, taste, experience on the college campus. Although it's particular that we let our audience know your campus is a Christian campus. It's a small school. It's not your typical yeah, liberal university. It's probably one of the most conservative campuses in the United States. Oh, but, that's interesting. Why but, do you think that is? Why? Yeah. Uh, because the college is openly a Christian university and biblically christian not just christian in a kind of that's a key oh, distinction just, yeah biblically christian yeah i mean they're they're not afraid to say like oh we are christian and this is why we view the world we do it's not like like my dad and i visited other college campuses and they were like you know they were the opposite it was kind of oh we're a university and also throw in some bible on the top this was like bam right out the get-go like whatever that meant <laughs> right from right, right out of the, the gate or right from the, the get-go <laughs> exactly probably being located in east Texas is also giving you a little bit of a head start to a more conservative uh, college definitely, campus. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> well, yeah. Although, outside the campus, the campus is, anybody who's not been to Longview, Texas, describe the campus where it is relative to the rest of Longview. Um, it's not in the best, oh, yeah, best part right. of town, it's in, is it? It's in South Longview, which is not the, it's not the best part of town. It's not the nice side. You hear, you hear gunshots, gunshots at, at night. night. <laughs> wow. That. Yep. But I, I went to Temple University, both for law school and for my first two years of undergrad. And Temple, anybody who's been in Philadelphia, especially back in the mid-80s, it was the highest crime rate in the country at that time. I think Memphis has surpassed it today, um, which is saying something about Tennessee and Memphis. And we would hear gunshots regularly. Out, I was on the eighth floor of an 11-story dormitory. And um, gunshots, there were crack houses all outside the campus was very contained four blocks city blocks by two blocks so it was an eight eight blocks together in the middle of a very dangerous area and strangely grew accustomed to it like that danger at first kept you on edge but then you just went ahead and lived and it's not like we let down our guard but you just kind of live exactly it's a, i mean it's the same at laterno you just you just don't go out you don't go off the campus by Man. yourself see that's that's just heartbreaking i mean cuz honestly you think about or I think about Longview, Texas, the East Texas Piney Woods. It's like, yeah, I could hear a shotgun going off somewhere, on, you know. <laughs> but to think about Longview having a, a South Side with gunshots and well, stuff it was, at night. Like, it was funny because, yeah. One happening of my, everywhere. <laughs> yeah, one of my friends from, he's actually from California. And he heard, we were out walking one night. It was a group of four guys. And he heard the, he heard the gunshots. And we, me and my roommate were talking about it. And he was like, oh, I thought that was just normal in Texas. And we were like, no, you don't fire a shotgun six times in a row. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, and then hear screeching tires. We're like, that's, <laughs> oh like, that's a drive-by. Something yeah. completely different. Well, I mean, you, so we were having this discussion about Gen Z because coming out of the midterms, and of course, we, we recognize that there were several reasons we didn't see this red wave that everyone had predicted. Um, 
from our, our party letting us down in terms of not backing conservatives. But but also my, my point that I was trying to make is we're sticking our heads in the sand if we're just blaming the voting machines, if we're just blaming the establishment, and we're not recognizing that young people, that many of which like yourself, 19, are, are coming into adulthood and are now voting men and women, are voting with with an extremely more progressive bent uh, or a progressive persuasion when they get up to the ballot box. And as conservatives, as much as we're fighting for election integrity and all the things, we we have to recognize that and understand that, I mean, think about the amount that the electorate is going to change as folks in your generation start hitting 18. I mean, I think I think the statistic, I don't want to be wrong here, but if we look back at the midterms, 18 to 24-year-olds, I think, comprised about 12% of the vote. Mm. You know, wow. that's that's significant. And when you've got a block that large that's voting, you know, Democrat plus 28 on, on a skew, that's, that's a big deal. So it just got me thinking, you know, what what are some ways, how do we address the culture of Gen Z from a conservative perspective? And then predominantly, I think it seems to me, we, and, you know, you can elaborate on this or speak to this, and maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like this younger generation cares a lot more about social issues than perhaps older generations do. I know that also uh, um, abortion was a was a big factor in at least the 18 to 29-year-old demographic in a midterm that happened just after Roe v. Wade was overturned. Mm. So that was also a big part of the vote. So anyway, that that's... So I sort of just want to hear what, what you the, your initial comment on all of that, but that that was the the predicate for me being interested in this conversation because the 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 big takeaway is this: we can't we can't stick our heads in the sand and not recognize this younger generation that's coming into the to the electorate, and they think I think in a large degree, in my perspective, a lot different than more traditional conservatives might think and we've got to address that yeah so well so first i'm curious you mentioned that election results after the overturning of roe v wade were there more votes in favor of pro like pro-choice or pro-life oh yeah you know i think i in my estimation and just from some things that i've read it was actually roe v wade that sort of got out the vote you know I i think it drove a lot of younger people who who are pro-choice or, or who are concerned about, you know, their quote unquote right to bodily autonomy, yeah. you know, to come out and... You mean their right to kill their children, right? Well, yeah, no, exactly, exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, their right to their own bodily autonomy, not anyone else's. Anyway, so that, yeah, I think, I think that that got out the vote in the young... I could be wrong, but that's just, that's the general sentiment. Yeah, no, that's, man, I'm just... I'm just thinking, because like I said, with the college I go to, and obviously the household I grew up in, it gives me a different perspective. So like, I'm not, you know... Well, but that's good too. We want to hear that perspective. Well, exactly. And so I know I'm way more conservative than 
probably 99% of everyone else in my generation. I don't know if it's, but still, you know what I mean? It's like, you, well, you, you would say that, I mean, even though it's not 99%, in your view, you would definitely view yourself in the 90th percentile in terms of being conservative exactly. in your generation. Exactly. Yeah. Like, and there's a ton of conservative people at the college I go to, but there's still, I still consider myself one of the most uh, conservative. Not, there's like, there's a good group of people, but yeah, you know, what I see from Instagram and, uh, you know, social media and online and even just like, that's probably the, where I have the most interaction with other people my age who don't think like I do. But like, I've had, you know, close friends who have gone, like, as we've grown up, we've grown apart and got, and they've become more Democrat as like, when we were younger, they, it was always, how it, how it always happened was when we were younger, they didn't care about the issues and I did. And then as we got older, all of a sudden, <laughs> when the media presses this button, it says, care about this. And all of a sudden they're saying, oh, I care about this now. And it's like, they weren't, and I can see like in their, you know, their um, households, their parents weren't teaching them about these things when they were younger, like my dad was. And so when we were little, I would talk about these things. They'd be like, oh, I don't know. I don't really care. You know, okay, I'm just going to go play my video games or do whatever. Um, and then, but as we get older, because their parents didn't instill that like, foundation in them when they get older they don't know how to think for themselves and they just say oh this is you know oh roe v wade is overturned how could they do this this is injustice and then they're 18 so they can vote and so they do yeah so this is what is what you're describing wills is because the parents took a passive pathway yeah. with how they raise their children at least with respect to political and cultural issues mm-hmm then the first time that someone took an active role is late in high school, early in college. Exactly. Which tells you what? Had the parents taken an active role when they were younger, they never would have been swayed by what the college professors are telling them. Exactly. The parents abandoned that responsibility, thinking they're like, oh, my children are thinking for themselves. But in reality, the children longed for that direction, and they never and the had parents it. didn't give it. Yeah, and so the college gives it, and then the parents wonder, well, why did my? Ch-? Some of the parents wonder. Some of the parents, yeah. Some, some of them, of them don't. don't even care. Yeah. yeah. So, question number one that conservatives need to ask themselves, based on what you're saying, is who's parenting your children? You know, exactly. Is, yeah. is it you or the media? Yeah. And and unfortunately, it seems to me when you look out of the majority, it's it's the media. Yeah. That's parenting our kids. And if you drill just a little bit deeper. Again, this is such a an indictment of parents who believe, even those who believe, some don't care enough, but some believe wholeheartedly that they're doing the right thing by their children by allowing their children to form their own ideas, quote-unquote, not realizing that the way that we are created by God, children hunger for that structure that a parent is designed by God to give them. And when the parents surrender that structure, they search for the structure elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And the colleges are all too happy to indoctrinate them exactly. in a different structure. Yeah, I was going to say, like just like you said, the parents, by thinking, oh, I'm letting my kid think for themselves, they're not. They're just making, they're releasing that control and they're giving that control to someone else to change how their mm-hmm. kid thinks. The kid is still going to be impressionable. So sort of two-part question next topic on that. So you you consider that you're at a fairly you're at a private Christian school and, and in your estimation, which knowing your your father I trust, is that you're on a really conservative, a fairly conservative campus. At yes. least at least, you know, respective to Ex- other definitely campuses. respective. Obviously there's 
there's still one dorm which has a um, BLM flag. Someone has a BLM flag in their sure. window. Well, but it's like, co- but it's like, college. Exactly. But everyone else on the campus goes, why are you here? Yeah. <laughs> well, so, so it's sort of two-part question to that. Do you think the bent of that campus being more conservative, does it, number one, lend itself to more open conversation amongst students in political discourse? And number two, does it provide for more open conversation with faculty on political discourse? So how, how does how has mm. the fact that you're on a more conservative campus mm. contributed Good to the conversation? Yeah. So actually, on a faculty level, so like I said, there's every um, faculty encounter I've had with, they're like, they're conservative, but then obviously there's different like degrees. Um, degrees, yeah, exactly. Some are very conservative, um, some are not. But so like it all come it all comes from their background. The ones who are Texas born and raised, they're like open to talk about it, like all the time. Whether it's like one on one or they might in their classes, the ones who didn't come from that background are less likely to talk about that. The ones who are more academia focused, they try to be a little bit more like. They pretend they're neutral. Yeah, pretend they're neutral yeah. a little bit more. So it's not no, no politics in my exactly. classroom. Exactly, the, the campus isn't void of that, and I I wouldn't even say there's no pol. It's not that they say there's no politics in my classroom, but it's always more like because like like I said, I've had in high school, I've had more liberal teachers than I have in college. Actually, meaning by the way, now that's interesting. Tutorials, tutorials, right? yes, yeah. Because yeah. we've all, we've homeschooled, and then, I'm thinking, wait a minute, your dad's a liberal. <laughs> was no, he your so teacher? Yeah, so let's let's <laughs> give context to that. <laughs> you heard it here first in the Freedom Matters podcast. <laughs> no, um, in homeschooling all of our children, once they get to eighth grade, then we we began incorporating tutorials. And at some of the tutorials, we've had some teachers who are good in their subject matter, but whose worldview are much different than ours. Yeah, exactly. So. From a change from high school to college, I've had more, like a higher percentage of conservative teachers in college than I did in high school. That, but like that actually is semi encouraging to me a little yeah, bit. Yeah, no, it was it's very encouraging to me. So that's the faculty. The student body is, I would say, they're way more open to talk about it, and it's it might be partially because of our age, because we're younger and we all don't know how to shut up. But like, <laughs> <laughs> and so like when I'll have these conversations with my friends and like, obviously my close circle thinks like I do because that's how we form close circles. But still, um, even like some of my other friends who I wouldn't consider my closest friends and have varying worldviews. Like I was in a discussion two weeks before I came home for Christmas about election fraud with another one of my friends who was in that kind of outer, not like a really close friend, but we're still know each other. Mm -hmm. We're still see each other every day. And he was just like, he was someone who had actually, I think he would say, he's a Republican, but he doesn't understand what was going on. He didn't know. He was like, we mentioned Joe Biden and he said, oh, well, we elected him. And me and my other three friends turned to each other. And we said, no, we didn't. <laughs> and he's like, what are you talking? And he's like, oh, well, surely if there's fraud, they would have figured it out by now. And we're like, there's plenty of, he's like, or he said something. The government about like, would never do yeah, anything he's like, bad someone, to us. Yeah, good someone, faith government. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Good faith government. He had like, if, if there was really fraud, someone would have done something about it by now. And we were like, that's the problem is that <laughs> there's mm-hmm. plenty of evidence. There's a lot for of people it. doing something about <laughs> yeah, it. Exactly. You, you, let me let me pause for one second on that comment. I had a similar um interaction with a young person who had just graduated from college in the spring of 2020 and that was his point of view. When I was challenging him on what was happening around us, his whole position was 
no, there's no conspiracy. This isn't really, you know, being done on purpose. And and he bought it hook, line, and sinker under this. Surely somebody would have protected us from this, right? This, exactly. this unwarranted trust in the government yeah. to watch out for you. So I want to focus for a moment on the fact that you are at a Christian university. Mm-hmm. So you you are a, a biblical Christian. Oh, that's, oh, that's right. Let's clarify. Yes, which which actually even an makes this it is, yeah. makes this question even more germane. Um, h- how do you see on that? biblically Christian campus, the the conversation regarding social issues like Black Lives Matter, you know, in, in particular, I think is probably a big one, you know, when we think about critical race theory and, and mm-hmm. social justice, because it's not just in our public schools, especially I know that, you know, the, the Southern Baptist Convention almost had a, a church split over this, yeah. you know, I mean, there's the, the way that social justice has infiltrated the way we present the gospel in our churches. What's the feel that you're getting in, in the quote-unquote biblically Christian culture on your <laughs> campus concerning these social issues? Yeah, so, I mean, from my perspective, and like I said, this is what's really refreshing about it, is in high school these kind of issues would come up, and people that's where people kind of step back, and they'd be very, like, I don't know, beat around the bush kind of thing. They wouldn't they wouldn't go directly at it, which is what I, something I've noticed since coming to Laterno is been once I've been there, like, like I said, because so many people are conservative, most of the time when something like that comes up, people just look at you like you're crazy. You're like, what do you like if, if crazy, if you accept, if you accept BLM, if yeah. you accept, like, if we talk about, BLM, like, if we talk about BLM and critical race theory, it's usually in, in jest or it's kind of a, or being critical or of being, those or exactly being critical of those theories. So like, because most people are on the same page regarding that, the discussion doesn't come up really it doesn't come up as often as it would in high school which for me is kind of refreshing because it's it's almost like when it comes up people deal with it so fast which is kind of like no and it's i don't know there's like i said there's that high concentration of conservatives that it's not so there's there's a significantly shared worldview definitely among not only on your campus but especially in your friend group yeah definitely we should probably also tell our audience that you, even within the campus, you're also in what's called honors dorm yeah, in the honors makes, college, that also which is makes even a, a tighter knit group. But t- tell us what that is, because when most people hear honors college, they might think of it just from a color, scholarly standpoint, but this is a little yeah. bit different. Yeah. Hill, uh, Hillsdale. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wearing the wrong gear today. Well, it sounds like you're describing Hillsdale to me. Like I'm just, <laughs> you know, engineering. It's actually, sh- I'm, I'm a refreshingly shocked to hear that even though I have a, I have sort of a, an idea of what Laterno is, but I'm familiar with it, yeah. and I know it's a Christian university. I still would have expected it. I would, I would expect it, expect that you would be describing it to be slightly more progressive leaning in a younger culture well, than I, than you're describing. Can Can I say something yeah, before no, Will's yeah, answers, yeah. and then I'll give you the mic again? It. What's interesting, Gary, is that for years, Hillsdale does not have an engineering program. And so, as you know, my oldest three went to Hillsdale, and the expectation from Larry Arn was that Wills would go to Hillsdale, even to the point at Rachel's graduation last spring, he was trying to twist Wills' arm and say, you need to come to Hillsdale. And it's always been very plain. Hillsdale doesn't have an engineering program. What are we going to do? There's, if they did, you know, that would have been a no-brainer. So we had to look for other alternatives. And our first alternative was Grove City College in Pennsylvania, where, which was an hour from where I grew up in Titusville. 
And for years, we just assumed because it had a good engineering school and because it was at least superficially a reformed Christian school, and we're Presbyterian, we have a background in that, reformed theology. But when we visited the campus and when we began to see how Grove City handled 2020 and COVID and masks and jabs and all that— you would have thought that Grove City Grove City was indistinguishable from any other major university as far as how it handled COVID policy, which was a stark departure from Hillsdale, and we felt very unsettled about that. So then we began thinking, what are we going to do? Um, and through one of Wills's tutors, uh, his calculus tutor in high school uh, was the one that uh, first referred us to Letourneau yeah. because he had a student there. And when we went to the campus— we went three or four times last year before Wills matriculated, but the first time we went, at, right out of the box, we kind of felt like Letourneau was the engineering version of Hillsdale. I don't, I don't want to diminish Letourneau by suggesting that they're a, a younger sibling of Hillsdale because they have different missions, except for the fact that they were concerned immediately and most importantly about the student and the person as a person created by God— and the reason that we are teaching, the reason we do, and how, what is it, 70% are engineers at Letourneau? It's not that big. It's like, um, I know 25% are mechanicals. I think it's like, I think it's 25. Well, it's, it's over half no. the school are engineering majors though, right? No, I don't think so. Not even that high? No, because their flight school is very big too. Their flight and their engineering okay. are their top two programs and then business. So it's like, I think if they take flight and, and engineering together might be 70. Okay. But still... The point I was going to make is that when the president of the college introduced himself on the first day that we were there visiting, before even deciding to go to the school, he made it very clear that their worldview was shaped by the Bible, and that that was their starting point and their reason for pursuing whatever academic journey was all rooted in first it's, it's the created order as established by God, and we do these things because we are creatures of a holy God. And that, that impressed us immediately, and we did not hear that at all at Grove City, which Grove City, on all the superficial levels and in all of its materials, and when you have private dialogue with them, why aren't you coming to Grove City? They claim to be Christian, and, and yet at its core, they wouldn't make Scripture their foundation. Yeah, so I'm also part of the Honors College, which is in, so the campus, I think it's about 3,000 students, and Honors College is probably 150, maybe 200 of those, so it's like 10%, less than 10%. Um, I wait, I thought you were an engineering major and took calculus, and you didn't know the math of 150 students of 3,000 <laughs> no, would be what? We don't learn, we don't learn 5%. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Let your mother know that, because I got criticized this week by my wife for <laughs> exactly. not being good at math. <laughs> Honey, I know that 150 over 3,000 is, <laughs> is 5%. 5%. Yes, that's right. I, I, yeah, I know what... I got off track because I was thinking 200, and then I was rounding to 300, and I was like, oh, 10%. And I was like, no, that is way less than 10%. Anyways... So 5-7% are in the Honors College, and that is definitely an even more conservative part of campus because, like, outside of the Honors College, there are definitely different schools of thought just from—and those are the kind of people that I happen to not run into as much on campus. Mm -hmm. That's why, like I said, even on campus. But there's a fellowship, right? And, and, yeah. and Bible study is important, and small groups are important, oh, very. and biblical worldview is the foundation. And that's—yeah, that's where all the, the majority of discussion comes, is it all— you know, we'll be talking about Bible, talking about faith, prayer, and worship, and all those kinds of discussions. And so, it's less, what I view it as, is it's less 
kind of like what we talk about at home. Instead of saying, all right, what does the media tell us to think about today and trying to apply the Bible on that? We just, most of our discussion stems from scripture. And then when we run into those other topics, we deal with them as we run into them. Right. It's not... It, it's, it's, it's the way we were made, right? As Christians, yeah. as believers, we start with the Bible and let that interpret everything else. But the world, including a lot of our Christian friends, they'll take the first thing the media says and be like, oh my gosh, you know, Ukraine. Now we got to pray for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. COVID, we got to pray about yes. this. Yeah. Right? So they've got it completely upside down. They want to they apply the Bible to, they take the world as the starting point and say, where does, how does the Bible say we should solve this? Rather than saying, wait a second, what does God say about the character of man, the, the relationship of man to God and the nature of the world and truth and all of those things? Maybe these guys that are telling me that this, you name it, fill in the blank, is a problem Maybe they're not even telling me the truth, right? Mm-hmm. And it affects the way we think about issues. Yeah, it's good. So one last, so we'll we'll get on and, and uh, love having you part of this discussion. We'll get on to some some updates. But so last, like sort of Gen Z focused question for you. So, and I don't mean to be this like some big ominous question because there's no you're not going to have the answer to, to this. But you know, if we're asking, all right, nineteen year old Wills, a, as you see it, right? Either where are we missing it, or how do conservatives, you know, reach not just college campuses, but reach this younger generation with a more conservative message? Yeah, that is a very big question. I mean, like we talked, like like we touched on in the beginning of this episode, I would just say it starts from the home before anything else. There's so many, I mean, look at the, I don't know any percentages on how many of like my generation was public schooled versus homeschooled. But like, we know the public school system is corrupted. We know that, you know, on those lower levels, those base levels, Democrats have been laying the foundations for years, building up those like, and we've kind of been sleeping, right? So like, to me, it starts even before college. College has been great. And I I think college, it even has the potential to be less, well, I, I don't know that, College won't be as influential on people if they're raised with a foundation, if they're raised with a foundation when they're younger. Yeah. You know, for people that don't, like we were talking about, for people who their parents don't give them any, a lot of structure when they're younger, they get to college and that's the first time they experience this. Someone b- really believes what they're telling me and they're, you know, they have this whole worldview and that's their first experience with that. So it's probably going to be much more overwhelming than it is for me who like, even at Laterno, if I, when I talk to other people who have different worldviews for me, it's not different because I've been talking to people who have different worldviews from me for as long as I can remember. And I've always been, (laughs) I've always been dealing with those issues because my parents never shielded me from that for my benefit. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good, I think that's a really good answer though, because what I'm getting, and I'm, I'm just sitting here thinking too about, well, how do we effectively do this? Like what I'm getting from you sort of, I'm hearing you say, I'm having a great college experience, but honestly, by the time we get to college, it's sort of too late. Yeah, and, I mean, yeah. The, their worldview is shaped, right? Yeah, and I, think I so. just and I just happen to be at a great college with exactly. with people that think like I do, and yeah. so that makes me think. It's like as much as I appreciate Charlie Kirk, and I think Turning Point USA is a great ministry. They're doing a great thing. It's like at the end of the day, you know, how effective can you really be on a college campus where most of these kids already have a shaped worldview? Versus, so that the, what we need to be asking ourselves is as conservatives as organizations, as nonprofits, as people who are trying to proselytize, you know, the conservative message, how do we tool parents and families to teach their children? How, how, because that's because that's where it is. 
And parents have a hard time doing a whole host of things. So what can conservatives do to reach families and to give them the resources and the tools that make it easier for them, that mm-hmm. that that bring the the barrier, take the barriers down to teaching All right, kids. wait a second. I got to pause there. <clears throat> I know. Where I, know you, I, I actually know, you, know where you're going. Oh, I know you didn't mean to imply this, but it's not easy. It's not easy. And I, I knew exactly where you were going. But I'm so glad you said it that way because, unfortunately, so many of our friends and colleagues do think that way. And it's the human condition, right? We want the easy way out. We want heaven on earth. We want every assignment and task to be as easy as possible, of course. But that is that is primarily the problem because everybody's looking for an easy way out. And if I send my children to public school, then I don't have to worry about relearning math, relearning history, relearning all of these things that I would have to know yeah. to teach my children. It is really difficult to homeschool children. And it involves time and sweat equity and digging back into, oh my gosh, I forgot this thing. But the rewards, both in going through the process and then the rewards at this point where I don't have to worry about, you know, again, I've got six children and I don't have to worry about any of them leaving the nest and changing their worldview because they are they are rock solid on it because God provided that for them through us and it's something I never have to worry about. I'm not being arrogant about it. I'm not saying that my children aren't sinners and don't have the propensity to walk away, but I don't have any, I don't see anything in them that leads me to believe that they would ever buy any of the world's lies. And you can see it by the, even the choices that they've made for college, right? And the choices they've made for work. We all have to make the decision to whether it's a hardship or not. We have to make a decision to prioritize our kids. Mm-hmm. So while we still have wheels in the studio, let's let's yeah. touch base on a couple things. We always do a China cabinet, and I'm going to do a, a and it's become a <laughs> Which, China closet. By the way, I was at an uh-huh. event last night, yeah, and so someone recently start has just started listening to the podcast, so they haven't listened to it, and they were like, "Why do you why do you call it the China closet and not the China cabinet? <laughs> the China cabinet would make so much." more sense. I was like, well, we actually used Started. to call it the China cabinet. It, it, there's been so many things to put in it. We, yeah. we now go it's, to the closet. It's big. Did they understand? Yeah, no, they, they, were like, they were like, well, man, maybe next you should get like a storage unit. <laughs> the China storage unit. And then we'll have a Chinese hotel. And yeah. Pods, those crooks. Um, I'm going to do a really brief, this relates to Kevin McCarthy, whom as we speak, so we're recording on a Friday before this goes out next Wednesday, what is he up to? The the twelfth vote for Speaker of the House? Yeah, actually, as I was getting out of the truck, they were just nominating the ballot for the thirteenth okay. vote. So the change that has happened since we recorded last week's episode and this week is that Kevin McCarthy went from <laughs> three to six to now thirteen votes. However, there's been negotiations along the way, and what some people don't realize is, and I can't. I can't give any inside information yet because it's not official, but what I am told is that these changes, should McCarthy get the the vote, it will solely be conditioned on the fact that these changes that we've gotten are transformational in nature vis-a-vis how the House of Representatives runs now, and it, it'll be like it used to run back in the old days when the people who occupy these positions of power actually cared about us, the citizens. So... For all of the naysayers, including some on our side, 
if you're patient with the process, you will see that these 20 have really been heroes in reestablishing um, liberty and separation of powers and how the House of Representatives run. But let me talk about one thing that hasn't been mentioned about one of the concerns of Kevin McCarthy before we got to this point where he was conceding to finally give in on, on these liberty issues. This is, again, always great info from the Center for Security Policy. Uh, Frank Gaffney does a little Freedom Minute every day. But he talks about how Kevin McCarthy has another problem that a lot of people are not talking about, and that is that he, number one, the Speaker of the House decides, of course, what kind of oversight is going to be provided. And although he's publicly spoken about performing oversight on China, the problem is that McCarthy has had this big conflict of interest. Um, Kevin McCarthy has long worked with Sequoia Capital, and Sequoia Capital is a firm that has invested heavily in and for China. The botched Benghazi investigation illustrates how a speaker like McCarthy's mentor, Paul Ryan, can neuter an inquiry. So this is the same concern that we've had with McCarthy, among all the other problems, is that even though he said he would put together a China task force to examine firms like BlackRock and Sequoia, he actually wouldn't subject to allowing conservatives to be part of this process because he is conflicted. Um, So it's really important that people understand the victory that we're very close to getting with regard to McCarthy's speakership. He'll be McCarthy, and because of the fact, this one of my friends told me again, he said, don't forget, Kevin, the biggest threat to McCarthy, to even if he promises something and it's not in writing, is that if he doesn't, one member can say, we're calling a speaker vote, and immediately those 20 who, who yeah. got these promises would say, you're not speaker that's anymore. The bi- that's the big concession, it, right, is, is returning the ability for one member of the House to make a motion mm-hmm. uh, to vacate the chair. Yeah, right? which is... Even if everything was not reduced to writing and he didn't provide conservatives the position on committees and the ability to steer what was discussed and what was not, then they would say, Kevin McCarthy, you have not abided by your promises and we're going to do something about it. And yeah, there's a, a measure Chip of accountability. Roy stands up and says, I'm yeah. calling for a vote. And he would have more than five people supporting him and McCarthy would lose his power immediately. So that's that's a great amount of accountability. I like it. Um, I'm hopeful that next week when we record, we can say victory. Yeah, that's good. Awesome. Gary, should we also touch base on um, one more thing that we talked about last episode? I think so. Because we have an update. Damar Hamlin, right, the Buffalo Bills safety, who had a heart attack on the field, went into cardiac arrest, and would it, were he not at a professional football field where they had... Would know, have died. Defib- yeah, defibr- defibrillator, hard yeah. word to say. And medical professionals, he absolutely would have died. Mm-hmm. And now, as of this recording, they pulled out his intubation, his, intub- his breathing tube, so he's breathing on his own. He asked, at least in writing, whether they won the game, so that shows... I think it. it's pretty awesome. Yeah, so neurologically, <laughs> wow. he's, yeah. All, he, he's all together. So the, it's a huge answer to so many people's prayers. But there's two things I'm concerned about. One, as a spiritual matter, I'm really disappointed that now everybody's focusing on these purely on these doctors from had the doctors not been there, the doctors did everything great. And there's no mention of God, right? God raises men from the dead, not doctors. And yes, he uses doctors to accomplish his purposes. But the fact that they were on their knees praying and desperate and crying to God, and then when the guy starts recovering, all I hear is about how how great the doctors were. It just leaves me with such a 
empty feeling. And it's just like, oh my gosh, you people, you were on death's door. You prayed, God provided an answer and you're taking credit for it. Yeah. And there was a lot of prayer going on. Um, I mean, I know there was a clip going around. I can't remember his name, but the guy on ESPN that, that like legit prayed, you know, on air, mm-hmm. which you, you never see. Yep. Wow. And, and like was throwing down, like in the name of Jesus, you yeah. know, praying. I, I think there's some things we saw come out of this that were pretty great. But as you say, we should now be giving God the glory. Absolutely. Man, for it. God deserves the glory. And then the other concern, Gary, that I have is the focus, the refusal to see what the true cause of this was. Now, we can't say with 100% certainty that the final cause of this cardiac arrest had to do with taking the vaccine, the jab, the mRNA experimental gene therapy. But what we can say is 95% of the NFL was forced to take that. We saw nothing to indicate that DeMar Hamlin was one of the people who objected to it, whereas we know the people who objected to it, Aaron Rodgers, Cole Beasley, there might have been a couple of others. So we can assume that this player took these jabs. We saw a sudden cardiac event that has now happened. Audience needs to know, just came out this week. 270 sudden cardiac deaths in the U.S. alone for athletes, like people who are in great shape, and not with impact, right? This is what the other, the New York Times suggested something about the NFL being too violent. Well, it wasn't the impact, but my concern, Gary, is that they're going to push it under the rug and suggest that this was a, a rare event, yes, a scary event, but it had to do with the violence of football rather than what was injected into this player's body. And that would be a travesty to all of the other players, some of which have admitted within NFL circles that they're scared of the vax and they're scared to talk about it for fear of repercussions. And they've got a gag order, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So let's make sure we make these points, okay? Because I got I got in a pretty heavy... Facebook discussion about this earlier this week with a with a doctor friend that I greatly admire and appreciate. And forgive me if I'm not uh, you know pronouncing this right, but this whole idea of commodio cardis. Yes. Yep. Right. All right. Here here's here's some facts that we absolutely know that everybody just needs to consider. Number one, the impact primarily was upper chest, shoulder, head. Yep. Primarily. Okay. That would not necessarily point to commodio cardis. Number two, we're not taking into account that usually commodio cardis, it happens about 15 to 20 times annually and is almost exclusively in youth baseball and happens from a, from a, a baseball, an object a like projectile. that, hitting, a projectile mm-hmm. hitting the chest. All right. We're not taking into account in this conversation that this football player is wearing pads. Yes. Okay. Particularly so. over the sternum, right? which is where McCullough said, you've got that protection of the sternum. It's highly unlikely that any kind of tackle is going to cause yeah. commodio cordis. And lastly, on that point, it's come out publicly that he had a cardiac arrest on the field and was resuscitated and had a cardiac arrest in the hospital mm-hmm. and was resuscitated. And from what I have now read and come to understand, that either never or almost never happens with commodio cortis. Commodio cortis throws the heart out of rhythm, cardiac arrest, and if you're able to bring it back into rhythm, you're good to go. Yeah. Okay. Um, Which suggests one of two solutions if it was commodio cortis. Either he would have been dead, they couldn't have gotten his heart back into rhythm, or his heart would have been back into rhythm, it would have been fine. Not this... 
tenuous situation that we were in for right. a day, two yeah. days. So, so the only, and I want to be clear, I'm not, I'm not a physician and I'm not making a diagnosis. I'm simply saying, knowing those facts, if we cannot go back into this and simply be able to ask the questions, mm-hmm. was this the shot, right? Then we are going to continue going down a terribly bad path. And let's even give them more of the benefit of the doubt, Gary. We're not even saying that the shot has to be the final cause, right? We're not even allowed to ask in certain quarters whether the shot was a contributing factor. That's right. In other words, so... That's an important point. Because the scar tissue that we know from peer review studies now, the scar tissue that's created on the heart, the myocarditis from the jab, right? Once that's established in the heart, then the heart doesn't have the flexibility that it would normally have. So now if you have a cardiac event caused, for example, perhaps by a clot, right? That was also perhaps from the jab. The heart then can't, it's stuck. It can't dilate the, or the valve, the valves of the heart and the the um, arteries themselves are not able to dilate as they normally will because of the scarring tissue. Those all indicate that the jab at, at least should be looked at as a contributing factor. And as you say, if we can't even ask that question, they will never get to the solution and, and you'll have more of these players. What are they going to do, Gary, when one of these players drops over dead without running into anybody? Then what's their, they're not going right. to be able to blame Commodio Cordis, right? That's right. If he's just running down the field because he has adrenaline, and that's how Peter McCall which, explained it. Which seems like it's coming. Yeah. We, we, we must be able to ask the questions. We must have experts who care enough to um, entertain the questions, and we must require that a thorough response is given to those questions. And th- and those are those are reasonable expectations when things like this happen. Yes. And um, that's that's what we need to have happen. Yep. Well, great episode. Thanks for joining us, Wills. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It's great, man. Thanks for answering the the rapid fire questions but your dad didn't give you a quiz so i was a little bit disappointed oh wait honest. i didn't give you a quiz that's right okay i'm gonna ask you <laughs> yes all right i almost got off the hook there will <laughs> what is elite capture and before i finish that question it has been discussed on this program so this could expose him also wow. as i'm too busy with my studies to listen to the podcast elite capture well, yeah. Well, I'm going to be honest. I haven't heard that term before. Um, what does it sound like it might be? Elite capture. Well, do I get like any hints? Hints? Yeah. Do the I, Chi- yeah, do the, I, yeah the, what? This is part of the Chinese um, overall entropic warfare, which we talked about last episode, how they're overall, right? They're engaged yeah. in war against the United States and its people through various means to bring chaos and destruction of the culture. Yeah. So elite capture is one of their tools. What do I you would think? say, I would think. Well, okay, there's two things, I think. One is elite capture, which is capturing the elites of the American society. Or it's like next level capture where they've captured the United States without the United States even knowing it. Okay, it's, it's the former, but okay. how would they do it? And who are those elites? Almost all of them. <laughs> well, um, no, we're talking, so we're talking about... The, the, the ones who are not us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it would be faster to list the ones who are not. Yeah, I guess yeah. that's right. It's like um, George, with George Carlin. It's, it's a club, and we ain't in it. Yeah. 
So I would give you a B for that answer. Okay. Um, yeah, the, the elite capture is, is basically what's happened to Kevin McCarthy. What we yeah. talked about, he's compromised in other areas because he's invested in this, in this case, Sequoia Capital, which is affiliated with sending money and does send money, American taxpayer dollars, to China in, in, in investing in Chinese Communist Party. But that doesn't look like a, a – on the surface, it doesn't look like anything's happening, right? And so yeah. you get them so invested in the benefits that they get from that, yeah. that that when a conflict comes, then they won't say anything negative against the enemy. Gotcha. Just so you know, Kevin, I had a, a comment on uh, an Instagram post, the episode that I posted right before the end of the year that was kind of a, a solo. Uh-huh. Christmas. Someone, yeah, someone said, man, I, I, I love your message, but – um. But I missed the quizzes. <laughs> so there you go. Great. <laughs> Thanks, Wills. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. If you'd like to learn more about Tennessee Stands, visit TennesseeStands.org to donate, volunteer, or get more information about what we're doing to preserve liberty for the people of Tennessee. You can also follow along on all social platforms at Tennessee Stands. As Thomas Paine reminded us, those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigue of supporting it. Mm